Are you looking for more ways to learn about military and veteran culture? Are you a mental health professional or public health professional without lived experience in the military but find yourself working with veterans? Are you a caregiver or a family member of a veteran? Then you might be interested in a series of books that have been released with you in mind. By going to VeteranMentalHealth.com forward slash books, you can check out three books that give you an insight into veteran mental health from a combat veteran perspective. These books are a collection of short, consumable essays that discuss a wide range of topics related to mental health and wellness in post-military life. Head on over to VeteranMentalHealth.com forward slash books and check them out for yourself or follow the link in the show notes. Welcome to episode 107 of the Headspace and Timing podcast. On today's episode, we have Dr. Teresa Larson the United States Marine Corps platoon leader who became a physical therapist and psychological and physical wellness expert in her post-military life. I have to be okay with me. And this is going to be a really hard journey. But in a way, I knew that these people just are unskillful in the way they understand mental health and understand humans. We're not just robots. We're, we feel, we think, we all cope a little bit differently. But the people that were judging me and you know, talking about me, knowing that before I even deployed, I was like the perfect Marine, right? Everyone was like, you, you do no wrong. And then all of a sudden I asked for help for a mental health condition like bulimia. And all of a sudden you become this major disappointment. Welcome to the Headspace and Timing podcast, a show dedicated to breaking down the stereotypes around veteran mental health. My name is Dwayne France, and I'm a retired Army non-commissioned officer and a combat veteran of both Iraq and Afghanistan. After retiring from the Army, I took on a new mission as a clinical mental health counselor for my fellow service members. If you served in any branch of the military, then you're familiar with the M2 machine gun, the 50 cal. It's one of the most effective weapons in the military's arsenal. If the weapon's headspace and timing wasn't set correctly, however, it was just a useless chunk of metal. Veterans can be rendered inoperable if their headspace and timing's not set correctly either. That's my goal with this show, to change the way that we think and talk about veteran mental health and reduce the stigma against seeking support. Each week, we'll talk with mental health professionals, veterans, and those who support service members, veterans, and their families. We're going to have real and honest conversations about a topic that most just don't like to talk about, veteran mental health. Let's jump into this week's conversation. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Headspace and Timing Podcast. Once again, and as always, we really appreciate you taking the time to listen and learn more about veteran mental health. Uh, and as we are increasingly talking about on the show recently, um, is physical health and the, the connection between physical health, uh, and our mental health as well as spiritual health and, and sort of everything that we need to have balance in. Uh, and that's why I was uh, excited to, to hear about and bring on my guest for today's show, Dr. Teresa Larson, who's a former service member herself, but also has, uh, um, reinvented herself uh, after the military and and really focused a lot on on uh, on health and wellness. So, uh, Teresa, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. I'm stoked to be on. Um, this is mental and physical health is what I love to talk about because it's a very big part of my life. Yeah, certainly, and and I appreciate you taking the time to um, to share with the audience a, a lot of what you're doing now with uh, with your company and with your organization, all the different things that you're doing. But before we get into that, I'd like to give you an opportunity to tell us a little bit about your background um, and and sort of how you got to this place. Well, so gosh, um, I am from Seattle, Washington, so I grew up there. And, uh, and also did ROTC. So that's what my exposure to, you know, getting into the Marine Corps was. I started off, uh, in ROTC and, uh, both my brothers were Marines, but, and I had no desire to go to a military academy. Um, I, I tested it for like a day and I was like, no, 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 not doing that. Uh, so went to Villanova, got the opportunity to play softball pretty competitively and then, um, joined the Marine Corps after. So I was commissioned and became an engineer officer in the Marine Corps, which brought me out to California, to Camp Pendleton, where I served as a platoon commander for two and a half years. Um, and during that time, I deployed to Iraq and to Bridgepoint, which is up in Northern California. We did mountain warfare training into Laredo, Texas. So we did like domestic deployments as well as to uh, Iraq. 
Uh, and I got out of the military a little early due to a mental health uh, reason, and which I will we'll get into, but I had bulimia nervosa. I was diagnosed with that and was um, required to get out of the military because uh, during that time there wasn't a ton of support for that kind of mental health, even though alcoholism was something that the military was pretty good at taking care of. It was these other things that kind of fit under the umbrella of addiction that at the time the military just was like, well, we don't know what to do with you, so it's, you better leave. Um, and that was a really hard, that was a hard transition for me because I didn't just get out. I got out honorably. However, it wasn't the way I wanted to get out. It wasn't what I'd envisioned. And how many times in life does that happen to us? Things happen. It's not like what you envisioned and you have to just keep going. Can't stop, but it hurts and it's hard. And so that transition is hard for every veteran or every military member, but in particular, for me, it was just like this whole, my whole identity was wrapped up in being this competitive person and Marine and being the perfect Marine and being a leader. And all of a sudden, I was like, wow, I don't know what I'm going to do next. So uh, from there, I ended up, because I played very competitive softball in college, I played a year of professional softball in Italy, really hard place to play softball. But you can imagine having an eating disorder, like there's a lot of eating out there. <laughs> um, and they really value the time with food. So that was a challenge in and of itself. And, uh, but in, during that time in my time with Italy, I learned like, okay, I want to be involved in the medical world, uh, but not as a medical doctor. And I really like fitness and I want to learn to respect fitness versus abuse it. So I decided to become a physical therapist. Um, I decided that was the best route. Not really knowing all the ins and outs of like what physical therapists do traditionally. I just was like, oh, this, this, this license of being a physical therapist is like the bridge between medicine and fitness. So I'm going to do that. When I, got out of the, when I got out of PT school, so long story short, I did all my prereqs, took a few years to do that, took two and a half years to do that, and then went to PT school. So that was like five years extra. Um, so I got my PT license when I was uh, 32 and um, then started my career and, of course, hit a wall in my career because traditional PT was just like BS to me. I just couldn't couldn't do it. Um, I, I think because of my background and just needing freedom and needing to be able to do and serve people the way I felt they needed to be treated, traditional PT wasn't it at all. And so I found myself again, like WTF, what am I, what am I doing here? I just got this license and now I really don't like my job. <laughs> so, uh, with my husband, we decided to start our own business and that's where Movement RX came about and it's very non-traditional and um, we're actually really able to serve people the way they deserve to be served, but we're doing also things in companies and the military now where we're bringing focus on breath work and what breath work can do for the psyche as well as for your body to protect it when you're lifting heavy things. So it's been really fun to like, the last six years to build this company to be something that I feel people really need. So there you go. And I'm here in sunny San Diego, which it's, it is sunny right now, but it's supposed to rain and I'm in my garage. <laughs> raining in, uh, raining in San Diego, raining in, in California is very different, I think, than raining in other places. But, uh, yeah, yeah, you know, there's, exactly. there's definitely a lot to, to unpack there. Just your experience, um, as, uh, as a, a young woman in the Marine Corps, I have had the honor, um, to know, uh, many different, uh, Marines, um, as well as the, the unique challenges of, of being, um, being a female in a male dominated organization, um, right. Um, in, in my 
career field in the army, I served with women from the beginning uh, all the way to the end. I, I led women. I, I had company commanders who were, were women, battalion commander, sergeants, major. Um, and so, you know, for me, it's not that unique. Um, but I'm wondering if some of that was a challenge for you. Well, so having two brothers that were in the Marines, like they kind of prepared me. So one was enlisted. He was um, he worked with Fast Company out of Norfolk, and then one was an officer. So I got two different perspectives. But what, and well, the officer was a pilot, so it wasn't like he had the the most rough life, not at all. The one that was enlisted gave me a better idea of what to expect. Um, a very bare bones, like don't mess around kind of <laughs> perspective. But but he didn't work with a ton of women in the Marine Corps, so I. I went in knowing that there wasn't a lot of women in the Marine Corps in general. I still think it's a pretty low percentage. It was like 7% the last time I looked. And as an officer, it was even lower. Like, there's just not that many women in the Marine Corps uh, compared to the Army or Navy or Air Force. But so I knew that going in, but I felt like, oh, well, I grew up with a single father and two brothers, so big deal. Like, I'm used to working with men. And it definitely... Well, at it in a sense of, okay, I, 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 I know how to lead people. I also know how to follow. I know how to follow, um, and I know how to communicate. And you know, I felt that, you know, there's, there's always, there was struggles that I wasn't going, I wasn't aware of going into it. So let's just say, like, there was a part of me that was really good at it because I was, you know, I had two brothers and a dad, and so, and the male energy was just easier for me to get along with. It was almost like girls after my mother passed away, just, I didn't understand them. And like, I didn't resonate with girls as much as I did with guys. So I guess I was a bit of a tomboy. Um, so going into the Marine Corps was a place where I just kind of felt like I fit in, but I didn't realize that even though I felt like I fit in, in some ways there was still a lot more pressure against, there was still a lot more stress on me. Like, if I did something wrong, like I, I did fitness competitions and I worked part-time with a supplement company when I was in the Marine Corps and I had a website, I got totally scrutinized for having a website and like wearing fitness clothing that was tasteful um, or just like, wow, you look tired today, you know, just from superiors of mine in front of my Marines. Like I would get criticized with, with the way I looked in front of my Marines. And imagine, like, that's just women everywhere. What do we scrutinize women for is how they look. It's not their intelligence. Never is. It's like, oh, she looked fat on camera. Or she does, She she looks, what she's not doing. She's not being a mother. She, she, can't, she can't be a mother and run a business. Like, just those kind of things played out in the Marine Corps by superiors of mine commenting on the way I looked. Or, wow, you look like you're in really good shape. Or doesn't look like you're in as good a shape as you were or, um, you know, Marines who weren't in my platoon, because if they were in my platoon, I'd have their head, um, talking about me and how, you know, what they would like to do to me. And I hear that through the grapevine. So, you know, I, I wasn't prepared for that, I would say, in my, like, sheltered growing up life. Um, but... I think that I handled it the best way I could. As a 22-year-old uh, in charge of all of these people and handling all these stressors, it still affected me. Right, and, and that's something else um, that, that was really interesting to me um, about your, um, your story um, is we often talk about, as you even said, uh, addictions and substance abuse and PTSD. And we talk about these psychological concerns that come out of our military service, um, but increasingly more... I am becoming aware of the fact that eating disorders, both in men and women coming out of the military, is significant. Um, and that's ultimately, if, if you would have said I was, uh, I left the Marine Corps because of a mental health issue, then people would have automatically said, oh, it must have been PTSD or it must have been, right. you know, depression or something like that. Until you said, no, 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 it was this other thing. Um, and people were like, well, I thought that was just for supermodels or, or whatever stigma, right? right? That, that's there. So, uh, I, I'd like to hear more about that if you're willing. Sure. So the, yeah, um, PTSD, I mean, I'd struggle with leaving my Marines because I left Iraq in the middle of my deployment. 
I volunteered to go home, which is went against everything that I ever wanted or thought I would do. Uh, I didn't want to get out of employment. I wanted to be on deployment. I was doing things before women were even allowed to be in combat. I was out doing things with my Marines that was, you know, helping our country and fight the war. And um, so the last thing I wanted to do was go home, but I knew I was sick and I knew that something was really messed up because I was throwing up four to seven times a day and I was forcing myself to. And what I, I could not cope with the stuff that I was just had built up in me, but also this, this pressure that was out there. And um, that was my way of dealing with the pressure. But it wasn't just there in Iraq. It was all the years building up to that. So, uh, and just, it was almost like this pressure cooker of a situation where I can handle pressure, but all of a sudden it's like you can only handle so much. What's the straw that broke the camel's back? So, um, the, you know, I told my XO out in Iraq, or my commander, I should say, I was standing in this as XO, <laughs> in a platoon commander, uh, that I had, it, I was stirring up a lot. He was like, yeah, you know, you kind of looked, <laughs> kind of looked uh, unhealthy, you know, you, you've been looking like you've been struggling. It's like, yeah, I've, I've been struggling, and I, I don't, I think I need some help, like, some legit help. And so, you know, we went to our battalion commander and he was like, well, why don't we send you to like, to Cottam? Cause I was in Fallujah. Like you can go work a desk job and they have mental health over there. So I was like, yeah, but it's, I, I'm not, I don't have PTSD here. Like I don't have, it's not a trauma that I experienced. Yeah. We've been doing stuff, but I handle, I've handled that stuff pretty well. That's gone on. And it's not that I just, it's, this isn't just like right now, this has been building up for some time and, uh, I need a health specialist. And so I had to kind of really stick up for myself to get an eating disorder specialist. And so long story short, like I was medevac home worst week of my, was one of the worst weeks of my life just cause it was just embarrassing. And like, here I am on a plane with people who are physically messed up. And I was next to, like, a guy that tried to shoot his COC. Like, he literally went crazy, and he's in handcuffs, and here I am with an eating disorder, right? And I felt so small, like, who am what the, what the hell? I still had this idea that what I had wasn't legit, but I knew I was sick. Like, I just knew that. And the reason I knew that was because, well, I knew I was sick, but... I wasn't just sitting at a desk job. Like, I was out of the wire, handling weapons, handling demolition. Like, people's lives relied on me, and I didn't feel like my 40% of mind space was good enough for these 50 Marines who needed a commander who was, like, had her shit together. And so I felt like if I'm thinking about when I'm going to throw up next and the fact that I haven't eaten, I would do to on my mission. <laughs> hundred percent. And that's just not fair to the Marines. So that's why I had to leave, but it was one of the hardest things to do because everyone looked at you like a piece of shit. And I knew I wasn't, but you just still can't help but feel that way. So coming home, I had to really fight for the healthcare to get my healthcare. I mean, my commander said to my face, you're like a disappointment. Like, why wouldn't you say something before? Yeah, you could argue that, but how many people were Marines, were trained to mission accomplishment? The Marine, my platoon was my family, so I wasn't going to let them, like, whatever tiddlywink thing I had going on before, like, get in the way of me doing my mission. I had no idea the effects. No one ever talked about coping in the Marine Corps and how to cope with the stress and just life stressors. Everyone deals with stress. But there's one who has actually taught how to manage it in their life, unless you've grown up with awesome parents, right? Or worked with a mental health specialist growing up. But how many of us do that? Usually mental health problems get are, you know, not diagnosed for a really long time because people don't want to get help. So I didn't realize that, like, for me, 
it was in that moment of asking for help that I finally started to like get to know myself on a deeper level. And what does Teresa want? What does Teresa need to be healthy? It was just a really hard process getting there. And so, yeah, a lot of people looked at me like an eating disorder. I mean, when I got back from the Marine Corps, when I got back from Iraq, um, guys in my platoon, not people that weren't in my platoon, I should say, because my platoon was still deployed, but people that didn't know me would, there was rumors that were spread about me about she knocked up, like, why is she home? You know, of course, the chick home from the mill, you know, from deployment must be knocked up. Um, but no, after, obviously over time that wasn't the case, tell, but it's, those are the things I wasn't prepared for is that stereotype of, and that's what I was really trying to avoid, but I don't, but I couldn't, and I don't think any woman couldn't, can avoid the stereotypes and the people, what, what people, the images and the things that people think about them. And that's just in life, any man or woman. But what I realized is like, all right, I have this thing. Nobody understands it. I have to understand it. I have to get better. No matter what anyone else thinks about me, I have to be okay with me. And this is going to be a really hard journey. But um, in a way, I knew that these people just are unskillful in the way they understand mental health and understand humans. We're not just robots. We're, we feel, we think, we have, we, we all cope a little bit differently. Um, but you know, the people that were judging me and, you know, talking about me and knowing that before I even deployed, I was like the perfect Marine, right? Everyone was like, you, you do no wrong. And then all of a sudden I asked for help for a mental health condition like bulimia and all of a sudden you become this major disappointment. Well, that's not okay. So the education of why, how these things develop and how to treat a human and how, but also that human that's struggling like myself, how to build yourself back up and, and be okay with you and be strong mentally and physically. So that was the journey I've been on since the Marine Corps. See, and I, I absolutely appreciate you sharing that in depth as, as, um, as hard as it was going through it. And then even as hard as it is, uh, to, to maybe talk about it. Um, but you had to go through a series of education for yourself. You had to educate yourself because there was nobody else around. You didn't, um, you didn't allow it to go as far as, as, as dangerous uh, as it could have been. Um, you said yeah. that, uh, you know, we're not taught to, uh, to cope. Um, but we're shown how to cope in the military. We're shown how to cope with, you know, stuff it down, don't deal with it, drink right. it away. You know, that's we're, yeah. we're we're nobody tells us how to do it. It's just we look to our left and our right, um, and they say, well, that's how you deal with this. Um, and you just you developed another way of coping with stress that was uh, arguably beneficial in the immediate term, the same way as as substances are, the same way as as anything is. Um, but then significantly detrimental in the long term. Um, so you had to go through a period of education of yourself about this before you could then turn around and educate others. Yeah, so I have no idea that. So the mind, like, you know, when people would tell me to meditate, for example, in college, it was like, why? Like, my mind is, I'm, I couldn't focus for that long. Like, my mind is going a mile a minute because I'm, smart and I've got shit to do and excuse my language. Um, but it's, it's, uh, you know, the thought of meditating seemed like, no, why would I do that? Uh, but yeah, it was a period of, I had to learn about how the mind works and this idea of coping. Like I, I don't think I've ever heard that term until like I started therapy, like intensively and just stress. And like how the the mental stress can turn into physical tension, and you know physical tension can also turn into mental stress too. The two can go hand in hand, mind and body. But until I really like started to learn about the body, biomechanics, anatomy, and started to get some therapy for my mind. So like PT school provided me that all that anatomy and biomechanics and pathology 
And then all the therapy I did supplied me information about my mind and how, like, these thoughts that would come up and why they came up and the the neuroplasticity of, like, you have, you make a decision and you do this thing and then it just gets more and more, it gets stronger like a muscle every time you do it. And so you have to have this pattern interrupt. And oftentimes it comes with, it's easier to change the channel, do that pattern interrupt through the body, like through breath work or going out for a walk, right? Or maybe doing a workout, whatever, whatever is, is that you, that resonates best with you. Sometimes it's one, sometimes it's all three in a day. Um, but the breath work is the easy change channel for me. And, uh, but what that does is it changes that pattern in my mind of going back to that place that I would go to, to rationalize this behavior away. And so the more you do that, the stronger that gets. And, but I didn't realize the mind was so complex, but you can strengthen it just like you do the body by performing good reps. And it takes action to do it. Like you can't just sit there and think this addiction away. You can't, I, you can't, Maybe some people can, but I don't know how successful they really are. Like, you can't just sit there and hope that your addiction goes away and be really determined to quit. There might be a small percentage that do that, but I think it's the the physical action of identifying the trigger and then doing something to replace the poor behavior, such as movement, such as breath work, such as talking to a good friend, you know, such as writing like something different than just sticking around up here. No, you're, you're absolutely right. It is very challenging just to, you know, mind over matter, right. To, to just, you know, um, be mentally tough. Um, as you were talking, I, I thought about the fact that, uh, yeah, I started smoking when I was 14. Um, I think my mom <laughs> knows, but if she doesn't, she probably listens and <laughs> she knows know now. now. <laughs> but, uh, but so I, I started smoking when I was 14. And after I turned 30, I realized that I'd been smoking for over half of my life. Um, and by that time, my wife and I, um, you know, we, we were both smokers and we both decided to, to quit smoking at the same time. I think I was 32, um, you know, and I'm 45 now. So I haven't had a cigarette in, in all of that time. Um, and yet even thinking wow. about it now, I'm craving, right? I do still in, in times of high stress and, and this is almost perhaps a, it's, it's the most graphic way I can uh, um, describe this is a while back last year, I was um, flying home and, and I was in the latrine in, in the, the airport and I looked down next to the toilet and there was a cigarette there and the thought popped into my mind and said, Oh, there's a cigarette. Why would I smoke a cigarette off of the floor of a public bathroom in the airport, but that's the thought that came into my mind. And I was like, well, and, and even though I haven't smoked in, in, you know, over 15 years or whatever it's been, um, it's still constantly there. And that's where I think you're talking about that, that pattern interrupt. Um, and I know that I'm, I'm never going to like, I don't know cigars, no pipes, because I know that if I do, I will slip back into that very easily. Um, and even being able to talk about that. And so this idea of just mind over matter, um, you know, I, I, I quit cold Turkey, so to speak, you know, when I was 32, but then it's still an issue and I still have to be on top of it. Not to say that that's, that's what I'm hearing from you, but that's what, what I thought of when you talked about, um, being able to, to interrupt and disrupt. Once you walk away from that, like latrine, right? Like you, you sit there for a moment, think about it, take a breath and you walk away. Let's change a channel. You know, and in a few moments, you know, when it was probably closer to 32, when you're closer, it was probably took a little bit more time to get over that thought. And then, but the more you walk away, the more you say no, physically say no, physically walk away, um, the easier it gets. But there still is that there, there, it's like once an addict always, well, once an addict, always an addict, um, but you're, it doesn't mean you have to still practice the behaviors. Like we all have, like I have a very addictive, uh, I have a very addictive personality. So I just have to be mindful of that. Um, that doesn't mean I have to be sick from this. Like you don't have to be sick from cigarettes or be a smoker, but you know that that tendency is still there. Um, and that's, I think good to just be mindful of, like be aware of. So when you go into certain situations, like, 
we don't allow smoking in bars here in California, and nor do I go into bars too much because I have a one and a half year old, so I'm not like out a ton anyway. But um, I know, so for me, food is the drug, right? If I eat too much, and food is everywhere, right? Cigarettes are everywhere. Alcohol is in a lot of places, but it's not like food or, you know, where you see cigarette reminders everywhere. Like, if I eat too much out to dinner or eat too much at home, the thought is always there. Like, oh, you could just go get rid of this, right? Or you should just not eat for a day. The thought is always there. Um, But it's less and less since the time I stopped binging and purging. And I just have to sometimes walk away, like physically walk away, take a breath, remind myself that but, you know, physi- physiology, like when you eat something, okay, this is what happens when you eat, like face the facts. Who cares if I overate? Uh, why did I overeat, actually? Was I out with friends or is I, was I stressed about something? Typically, it's one or the other. <laughs> so what was I stressed about? Solve that. Start working on that. And then don't really worry about the food. You know, and I, I, I get the sense that, yes, there is this why where I need to, and that's especially when I say, when I feel like I have this craving um, uh, for a cigarette, it's the why, and I, I look around and what's in my environment that's causing this. And again, usually yeah. it happens to be stress. Um, but something you had mentioned a couple times, and I'd like to dive uh, a little bit into, um, is that you said with, with fitness, you learn how to respect fitness versus abusing fitness. It sounds like you've learned to respect your body versus abusing your body and to respect your mind versus abusing your mind. Is, is there a connection there? Yes. So um, I think big picture, I had to start just looking at why I was using fitness and food as my drug. So whether it was overeating, binging and purging or not eating and then exercising as much as I could to get rid of either way, it was, I just saw fitness as a way to make myself look better, right? Because if I looked more fit, more healthy, the more I would be respected, more people would make comments because it just like, look at society, what people look at is beautiful. Uh, they look at people who are fit, like you, just being a college athlete. I was always the fitness person on my team, uh, the Marine Corps, the fitness guru. So it was like I had to live up to this. So fitness became this kind of, I felt I did. Fitness became this thing I abused because I had to look and be the part that everyone wanted. And uh, granted, I was already a pretty healthy person before I started to go downhill, but um, I just had a lot of pressure on me to look and be the part. And I look around me to this day, and that's that's a lot of people. It's a lot of people. And I mean, I'm, I work in the fitness industry. I look around, and there's so many people who put so much pressure on their body um, and, and what they look like. And so I realized from a, from early stages of going through my therapy that I had to look at fitness as a way to just help my mind, help my body, make my body stronger. Um, look at what my body can do versus what it looks like. Look, my legs can take me really far and I can, I, my arms can lift people up and I can carry people off the battlefield if I need to, right? Or I can carry, I can do very functional things with my body. It's pretty awesome. So the more I focused on that, the more excited I got about lifting things, lifting heavy things, and start, stopped doing as much, actually. So to this day, I do five days a week, an hour, between yoga, lifting, um, running. But I don't even really run that much. <laughs> I just, I, I do the things that make me happy versus like, oh my gosh, I have to be on the Stairmaster for an hour and a half to burn all of those calories or... I need to go out for an hour run to burn off everything that I ate the day before. That was the mindset before, but really I was running from the stress I wasn't coping with, with my job and um, my family life. And uh, so 
now I look at movement. I've been able to over, it took time, look at movement as this is for my mental health. This is going to clear my mind and help me cope with the things that I'm doing in my day. And wow, I went out for a mile and a half run. And wow, I just lift, deadlifted that much weight. And that's pretty cool. And I got to work out with another mom, you know. So I kind of like celebrate those. And But now I have much more respect for my body. And I just had an 11-pound child, you know, not too long ago. And <laughs> it was just like, yeah, that's really freaking awesome what I did and came back from that. And um, in my mind, like, you know, I have to, even though the Marines at the time looked I felt like a disappointment. I'm very proud of myself for speaking up and coming home. Another Marine could do my job. Like, the lieutenant that took over for me was such a freaking baby about it. He was like, oh, man, I have to deploy and take over for you. It's like, dude, I'm sick. I would have done the same thing for you, bud. And, but, like, he didn't understand. He didn't understand. Um, and I had to just remind myself that I'm not a disappointment. I did what was best and my Marines are going to benefit from that because I could have gotten someone hurt. And even though this guy was being a little pansy about it, going overseas, he was going to do a, he was going to have, do a better job than I could have done at the time. I'll admit that, you know, and, but I was able to build myself up as a leader, a leader of myself first. I had to take ownership of my health first. And realize, like, I'm okay. I'm not a disappointment. I'm very proud of what I, the decision I made. And to this day, I have to make hard decisions all the time. That was just the first of many hard decisions I had to make. I have had to stick up for myself in business so many times. I mean, I'm also in a male-dominated industry in the strength and conditioning world. And, you know, I just bought out my business partner. Very unamicable reasons, but, like, I had to stick up for my business. I've had to stick up for my business in many ways. I've had to stick up for my family. I've had to stick up for myself in my own family. Um, so it was just the start of kind of taking ownership. Right. And, and it's very poignant what you said. <clears throat> Another Marine can do my job, right? And this was one of the biggest things when I retired, um, finding out how replaceable we actually are, right? You know, I, I always say that, um, cause we're here outside of Fort Carson. I, I drove through Fort Carson the day after I retired. Um, and, and wouldn't you know what? The flag went up, the flag went down and the army went well and all without me, right? I mean, yeah. and not to say that this is, but, but another Marine can do my job. Another soldier could do my job. Another Marine could do your job, but another Marine couldn't be you. No. And, not and, at all. and nobody else can be me. Yep. So yes. And that's a very, so when it came to like facts, of what needed to happen in Iraq. This Marine could do my job. He was fine, right? He could do it. Not the same way I would do it, but he could do it. No lieutenant would lead my platoon like I did. You know? And in my eyes, the Marine Corps would never be the same. But it's just... Uh, but I do know that when you face the facts of what needs to be done, those are easy. You can feel those. Just do your job, care about people. People care about, you know... Platoon manners do things a little bit differently. Each one does little things a little bit differently. But I do acknowledge that there is a uniqueness. However, when you need to just get a job done, and like he, I knew that he was able to do it. And the hard part was letting go of that ego of like, it has to be me. It has to be me. I mean, you, you have to do that in life to truly move forward. Is realize it's just not about you all the time. Like you have to let go of that ego, what's going to provide you the best environment to be the most healthy. And it's not about getting more comfortable. It's about getting uncomfortable. Like I didn't leave Iraq to be like, Oh, I freaking hate it here. And I want to just sit on my couch. Like, no, I, it sucked. Like the worst thing is to go home in the middle of a deployment when your Marines are like, what's wrong with you? And why are you here? Why are you home? Like that's, it's not easy, but I grew so much from that experience. And the Marines that I did work with that took the time to like understand the situation, like I'm still in touch with to this day. So I, I, 
all through your story, Teresa, I'm hearing a lot of self-awareness, and this is critical for improvement. Um, even back to, um, uh, I, I tried, you know, um, the visit day at the, at the Naval Academy, and I realized that's not for me, right? That is yeah. not what I wanted to do, right? <laughs> I, I have that awareness. Um, you know, you have the awareness of being in Italy, and there's this concern that you have and, and, and how challenging it can be to be in this community that's all about food, the awareness about um, you know, I know there's a problem and the mission is, is larger than me. Um, but even the awareness of, I didn't know what I was getting into when I was in physical therapy. I can imagine that as a physical therapist and traditionally how the role is, you're always helping someone after an injury has occurred that, you know, um, perhaps if you had done some other things four years ago, this wouldn't ha- be happening now, yeah. right? And so it was really a postvention type thing. And so this awareness, I think, is very critical for your own recovery journey. Yes. Well, it's a big part of my message as a PT now. It's like, so we're very much, the pre- we're on the prevention side of things. People will naturally come to see a mental health specialist when they're injured, right? It's when they're like, oh my gosh, things are really bad. Um, very rarely is it on for the prevention. Like you normally see people in yoga classes or meditation classes, but th- that are on the prevention side. Um, but to see an actual mental health specialist is like things have probably gotten pretty bad. Um, to see a physical therapist, things have probably gotten pretty bad. So I, I know that psychologically people are going to see me post injury. Um, but now that I've been doing this for a while, the reputation with us is like, no, go see her, go see her company because you want to see where you're at mobility wise and see if you're at risk for injury. And so people come to see us and get assessed so they know where they're at. They have like a baseline of where they can start working. Maybe they didn't know they had problems with their ankles or they didn't know they had like range of motion issues with their ankles or range of motion issues with their shoulders. But we we were able to find these inconsistencies, stability or mobility issues, and give them a template of things to do to help start working on that. And that's, but what I found is that we can never not touch upon the mental health piece. It's like, and it's not so much on the one-on-one practice, actually, because I don't have a lot of time. I have an hour with someone, sometimes two, but still, it's like, okay, they've got so much physical stuff going on that. Yeah, I focus more on that. And if there's any mental vulnerabilities, those those will come up. But I don't get a chance to like sit down and really dissect those um, in in depth. If someone really needs help, I will refer them. I'm like, you know what? I think a mental health specialist would be great in conjunction with PT. But where I found is that what I found is that in my seminars I give to companies, so company leadership teams now hire me to come in we talk a lot about being vulnerable and leading yourself first and calming the mind through the body and teaching different kinds of breath work and um, just doing some soft tissue mobilization for your spine, like what that can do. It's like a pattern interrupt in your day. You're doing a form of self-care. Like when was the last time you did self-care? Well, I got a massage like two months ago. Well, that's, that's great, but this is something you should be doing every day, like something a little bit every day. And so it's been fun. It's been fun to actually finally go into companies and discuss mental health and ways to do it, ways to start preventing major issues through the physical, our physical well-being programs. Um, and it's not to say that, like, district school district of San Diego, right? They deal with parents, uh, children who've been abused. Um, two principals committed suicide in the last year. So not only does the leadership, the leadership need help, but children and their parents. But I'm not going to cut, I can't, child abuse, oh, I would just like to be a bounty hunter for those that abuse child, children. But that's not right now. That's later on. That's like my next career. Uh, but the the things that I can help with is not telling someone that not to commit suicide, but to like get on the beginning stages of just stress that people, this chronic stress people are in and start to help them cope better. Like really tap into this term coping and like 
when people identify triggers, becomes more self-aware of these triggers, and but the but also provide them a list of resources for people who can help them if they're having suicidal thoughts. Uh, resources for, you know, I mean, the, the school district has, they obviously work with um, the children that are abused, too, and families and figuring out how to get them out of those families. But the key is, is like, we're on the prevention side, and we can do a lot through our physical well-being. And that is, uh, that's absolutely true. The idea of, of prevention is critical. Um, and you're right. Like you said, I always said that if I was a medical doctor, I'd be an emergency room doc um, because people be coming into my office bleeding from a thousand cuts, right? They, they always right. seek a mental health professional either just before crisis, right. during the crisis, or, or after the crisis has occurred. Um, and I would love to be able to get upstream, right? This is what we're always talking about and, and what you know many of us are talking about in the prevention field is how do we get upstream and start to address the issue before it becomes a critical issue so they don't need to come to me or to you um, uh, to be able to do that. So yeah. I, I think that's great. So if people were trying to find out more about what you're doing, um, your book, your blog, your podcast, your company, how would they find you online? So there's two places. Uh, com is where you can get all the stuff about my new normal podcast uh, and my book, Warrior. And then if you want to learn more about our physical therapy work and the work we do with companies, go to movement-rx.com. That's great. And I'll make sure that uh, all of those are in the show notes uh, so that uh, people can go find them and, and we'll make sure to get that links out there. Thank you so much for joining. Yeah, this was an honor. I appreciate you and what you're doing here. No, I, I appreciate you, uh, and I appreciate, again, what you're doing. And if all of us uh, do a little bit, then uh, a lot of stuff will change. Yes, I totally agree. Just start. Just start doing something. You're listening to Headspace and Timing, where we're trying to change the way that we think and talk about veteran mental health. I hope you heard the same messages that I did in this episode, that there's still stigma regarding mental health conditions, both internal and external. An often overlooked but significantly impactful condition in the military and veteran population is the prevalence of eating disorders. According to an article published in 2014 by Scott Litwack and his colleagues, the presence of bulimia nervosa and binge eating disorder are consistently associated with the presence of PTSD and depression. Their findings highlight the need to screen for eating disorder symptoms among both male and female veterans, especially those that have symptoms of PTSD and depression. Now, Dr. Larson didn't explicitly indicate traumatic stress reaction as a reason for her condition, but the fact is, is that exposure to trauma and the methods that we use to deal with it can be particularly harmful to us. Another thing that I'd like to point out, Dr. Larson was honest and open both about her condition and her reaction to it. Shame, fear of judgment, guilt, all of these are things that might keep us from talking openly about what we're dealing with, both physically and psychologically. She was unapologetically focused on her own wellness, regardless of the judgment that she might have endured. As a matter of fact, she was being judged anyway, so what's more judgment on top of what was already happening? The fact is that her life is hers, my life is mine, and your life is yours. Allowing the opinions of others to impact how we live our lives is something that perpetuates the problem, not solves the problem. If you want to hear more about Dr. Larson's story, check out the links to her book, her websites, and social media on the show notes. Thanks for taking the time to listen. If you want to find the show notes for this episode, go to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash HST107. While you're there, share the link to the show with somebody that you think might need to hear it. We're always looking for guests, either veterans or those who support them. You can drop me a line at info at veteranmentalhealth.com to recommend guests, or you can go to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash guest to fill out a suggestion or request. Just a reminder that the guests and information in this show are for educational purposes only and not meant to be considered professional advice. While I am a therapist, I'm not your therapist. If something you've heard makes you think that you should talk to somebody, then reach out to do so. I'd like to thank Doc Todd for giving us permission to use his track, Not Alone, from his album Combat Medicine. 
Doc's trying to bring the discussion about veteran mental health out of the darkness and into the light, and you can see all of his work at therealdoctod.com. Join us next time for another great episode, and until then, remember veterans, you're not alone. Ever. The struggle is real, found a piece and lost a soul Eventually my drinking, it got out of control There in darkness I roam, struggling to find home See suddenly death didn't feel so alone 22 a day, destination unknown It could have been avoided if you picked up the phone But now you're gone, so I guess all we get is the tone Nothing but bone weeds, overgrown, pushing up stones I've triumphed over enemies, co-created mini-me's Broke out facilities that tried to put an end to me R.I.P., I'd rather grind in tranquility Often in Tennessee, embrace my ability Are you looking for more ways to learn about military and veteran culture? Are you a mental health professional or public health professional without lived experience in the military but find yourself working with veterans? Are you a caregiver or a family member of a veteran? Then you might be interested in a series of books that have been released with you in mind. By going to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash books, you can check out three books that give you an insight into veteran mental health from a combat veteran perspective. These books are a collection of short, consumable essays that discuss a wide range of topics related to mental health and wellness in post-military life. Head on over to VeteranMentalHealth.com forward slash books and check them out for yourself or follow the link in the show notes.